0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series held on April 18, 2018, focusing on tax reform's impact on fixed assets. The panelists for the webcast were Brad White, a PwC tax partner and leader of our Accounting Methods and Fixed Assets Practice, and Nina O'Connor, Tom Dunn, and Ann Andrews, all PwC tax partners as well with our accounting methods and fixed assets practice. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists around fixed asset planning and implementation of that planning in light of tax reform, including nuances relating to specific international reform provisions.
1: Take a listen. So, and I want to transition to you now. Um, I think it would be helpful – for you to share your perspective around planning. We talked a little bit, Nina, around some of the technical rules, mm-hmm. but I'd like to hear how you would translate those technical rules into the planning that your clients and, and the folks on webcast should be considering.
2: Absolutely, Brad, thank you very much. And it's interesting just looking at the polling results, um, I, I noticed that 44% of our participants are saying that they are planning on, on continuing to focus on fixed assets and doing and doing related planning. But to your point, I have so frequently seen with my clients that what they're looking at are the big chunks, mm-hmm. um, and the the, uh, the 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 new tax law has created an opportunity that has a very short window period, mm-hmm. um, and it has a very short window period because, of course, the rate is going to change right as of as of uh, January first of two thousand and eighteen, <laughs> so we're going from thirty five percent to twenty one percent, and so. The, the natural and, and obvious thing that taxpayers would want to do from a planning perspective is try to move as much of your income out of that 35% tax rate year into the 21% rate year mm-hmm. and move as much of the deductions that you could otherwise take in, in a 21% year into the 35% year. So how do we do that? Well, you can do that by Virtue of of trying to accelerate depreciation deductions associated with your fixed assets is one way to do it So there's obviously a bunch of other planning opportunities as well But but that's a big one and what I've noticed is that um, as I'm talking with people about such um, accounting method changes that they're sort of focused on a, a Limited population of things and so that's really what I want to talk about But just from a sort of an administrative perspective and kind of thinking about that window period for a second The the, uh, opportunity to accelerate depreciation deductions comes through an automatic uh, change in method of accounting, Mm -hmm. and automatic changes can be filed as of the date of the tax return. So for companies who are fiscal, or excuse me, for companies who are calendar year taxpayers, you have the opportunity to file a method change with your October 15th filing of your tax return. Um, There are some other method changes that would be available to companies as well through non-automatics, but non-automatics do have to be filed by the end of the tax year. Um, And so obviously for calendar year taxpayers, that has passed as it relates to the Mm -hmm. 35% year. But for... um, But for fiscal year filers, it's possible that you still have an opportunity to file a non-automatic method change for for those things that would would be relevant. So the things that um, I'm particularly focused on here for this webcast are depreciation lives and methods, um, both as it relates to just simply your fixed assets that you place in service, but also the larger things that you perhaps self-construct or you acquire and would be relevant to have a cost segregation study done, as well as any sort of repair studies, because um, the the uh, definition of what qualifies for repairs for tax purposes versus for um, versus for book purposes can be very different.
3: So, Anne, and you're you're saying it's not just the 2017 activity, but through it, even now after N18. Assuming you can get it under an automatic, you can make changes to things in prior years.
2: That's exactly right. And that's actually probably the biggest part of the play. So we'll okay. talk about that in just a second. Yeah, I mean, and I was
4: just going to say to further that, people don't realize how far back they can go. Right. I'll have clients say that, oh, you know, we'll go back a year or two. I don't have records. I, You know, it, mm-hmm. I probably don't have any basis in assets. And I'm going to say... My rule of thumb is 10 years, but we've gone back 15, 20 years, where there's actual basis in assets. And even if there isn't documentation, there's engineering analysis, there's other ways to be able to create the support, the positions that you're taking.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so that's, as you'll see on the the first bullet on our next slide here, is that the rule of thumb needs to be, if you have basis on your fixed asset register that you will depreciate in 2017, it is eligible for evaluation. That's the way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So that asset might have been placed in service in 2017, but it might have been placed in service in 2016, 15, in 2005, in 2000. How far back can you go? Mm-hmm. You can go back well, as far as you've got basis. If you've right. got 39-year property. I, I mean, essentially, it's 38 years, except for I think I did Older the Older stuff with acres. There's some really, really old yeah. stuff yeah. out there. Yeah, <laughs> and it starts to get a little low. But from a practical perspective, I think you're right, Nina. I think what, we, what really we see in practice is that most companies look back to you know, a certain point in time where they can get comfort, mm-hmm. that the records give them enough information or the personnel available to them give them enough mm-hmm. information – to be able to make a reasoned assessment as to whether or not that asset was placed in service at the appropriate life at that time.
4: Okay, So I get this comment from my clients. Also, I've got nothing. I've gotten the facilities guys gone. I've got no records. You know, it's someplace in Iron Mountain. I've got, you know, paper sitting there. I'm, I, I can't get anything. Is there any opportunity to go back? and grab any of those costs?
2: I would say that it depends. I mean, the answer is, is there any? Sure there is, right? But what you really have to look at is what can you put together in terms of support? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, if you have if you have a bunch of homogenous assets, right? And based on the descriptions that are in the fixed asset register, or based on um, a variety of other assets that you placed in service at the same time, mm-hmm. and you've got some records, but not all of the records, right? or potentially, I mean, it's, it's, it's even a potential to do some sort of a stat sampling assessment if you wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, get that detailed. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that we're facing, of course, is that people are running out of time, yes. mm-hmm. right? That's yep. the biggest That's the biggest issue with this thing is that how far can you go back is a matter of, of practicality. And so the benefit that you could obtain from doing this versus the amount of effort that you would have to put into it, oh, that starts to become questionable. And obviously, the longer an asset has been on your books, mm-hmm. the less basis there is to accelerate into the 2017 let me add depreciation. One point yeah. the
1: engineers in our practice that are... <laughs> Raising their hands and asking, "Well, why aren't you talking about me?" The answer is there's also an engineering aspect to this. That's absolutely correct. Where either through valuation or engineering principles, you can create the documentation.
2: That's absolutely correct. So when you're looking at so so that's exactly right. So when you're looking at a particular building, you know if you think about it, if you were to buy a building today mm-hmm. and all you had was a purchase contract, and you don't have any, you don't get any of the blueprints, you don't get any anything, right? That's exactly what you would have to do, Brad, in order to be able to do a cost segregation. So the same thing holds true for the purchase price of an asset of a, of a facility or some sort of large asset that was placed in service you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, you can do that same sort of thing. So what are we talking about in terms of what can be accelerated? Well, the first thing to think about is to remember that generally speaking, the people who are entering fixed assets into the fixed asset system don't know a lot about the tax lives of mm-hmm. fixed assets. right? And so they may put those tax lives in incorrectly. In Into the system. And as a result of that, you may have things that are on your books that if you looked at it and any reasonable person looked at it, you would say, well, that's not a 39 year asset. That should clearly be a five or seven or 15 year asset, right? So, fixtures, decorative lighting, those sorts of things. There's things that are external as well, like sidewalks and landscaping and other sorts of land improvements, right? Um, But then, in addition to that, there are oftentimes costs that are capitalized as a result of repairs. Mm -hmm. You know, any of your clients capitalizing repairs based on their Book policies? Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> and even more so than their book policies. So, and, and we talked about this a bunch where, you know, some taxpayers just wanted to, I don't want to say the easy way out, but it is a lot simpler just to be following your book so there's no book tax differences. And maybe in years past, on an individual year basis, it wasn't really that um, a, it, 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 it valuable. There wasn't enough juice there to make it worthwhile. That it preference, you want to try to grab everything that you possibly can. And I'm going to say, you know, the $10,000, 20000 $30,000 items that are capitalized on your book, you should take a harder look at those. Um, the, often, often, often they should be classified and can be categorized as a repair for tax purposes.
2: Right. And, and, and the key on this is that, it is exactly to your point, right, is that as these things were occurring and you've got these what are considered fairly small items that book loves to capitalize because they don't want to have to take a deduction against income, right? But for tax purposes, the the conformity was great. It was much simpler, more practical for Mm -hmm. you. But now if you were looking at this on a holistic basis and you can go through and identify a whole group of assets that you could, instead of having capitalized, Mm -hmm. the remaining basis gets to be deducted immediately through a repairs accounting method change. All of a sudden you've got a nice big deduction that's going into the 2017 tax year at a 35% tax rate as opposed to the 21% tax rate that you would otherwise get the subsequent deduction on that capitalization. So that's really kind of one of the key things that, that people need to think about on this is sort of that holistic thing. And I'd
3: like to hear your perspective, all three of you maybe even. We've had some situations where a company might have great policies. They might even be applying their repairs and everything correctly. But if they make a big acquisition, they end up, and let's assume it's a stock deal, they step into the shoes. They end up with some policy weren't in sync so for example we had one where we found starbucks cups at 39 years you know things like that do you see any of those too because i've ran into a couple but i don't know if that's happens all the time
2: Oh, I think it does happen all, all the time. time because because when companies are going through those those M and A activities, oftentimes they're stepping into the shoes of the old, mm-hmm. whatever the old ERP system is, and and you know that that integration may come long after, right? Mm-hmm. And upon integration, pulling that stuff over can be, you know, you may lose detail, you may retain the detail that can be that can be fairly tricky, right? Yeah.
4: No, and you think about who's putting the assets into the system. It's a it's a book person, right? right? And yeah. the That's descriptions right. could be okay for book purposes, for tax purposes, you start digging a little bit deeper, clearly a significant portion of those smaller cost assets could be classified as a repair.
1: And it makes total sense when you you realize that many companies have millions of records, millions of assets, and you never know what you're going to find until you actually look. But generally, you're not devoting the resources to look and find every opportunity. And to your point, this is the time to do it if you're ever going to do it.
2: That's right. Mm-hmm. So, our next slide is just really a quick, it, it, it's, a, it's a very quick sort of walkthrough of what the calculation is. It's, I mean, it, you know, in summary, you, you look at the depreciation you did take under the way it was originally capitalized. You look at the depreciation you could have taken had it been deductible under repairs or, or at, a, at a shorter life. You Look at the difference, and that comes through on your 2017 481A adjustment mm-hmm. on your Form
1: 3115. So, Perfect. Uh, Tom, I wanted to get some of your thoughts. You've been a little. Your section is on the tail end of this. I want to get your, your perspective heard. Um, oftentimes, what are some of the concerns that you're hearing from your clients
3: around fixed asset planning and the implementation of that planning? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one, the, the biggest one out there is, am I, what, what, am I, what problems am I going to be creating if I take this planning? But at the end of the day, you know, do I have the time to get it done? Am I going to be able to end up with something that's risky and am I creating a whole bunch of compliance issues downstream? Those are the big ones. The other one that you that we definitely see from time to time, particularly as it relates to like maybe bonus depreciation, is perhaps that they weren't taking the bonus depreciation because they didn't want to deal with the complexity maybe at the state level. Or perhaps it was a 199 issue. There was a taxable income limitation. So some of those pieces were they weren't doing it because there was some other reason and it feels it seems with the reform, you know, the elimination of AMT in most cases, 199 being gone, that maybe there's going to be far fewer reasons that people aren't going to be trying to capture that on a go-forward basis. And so they really have to think through the what what it takes to do it.
2: Right. I've also seen that folks um, oftentimes just prefer the simplicity of book mm-hmm. tax conformity, mm-hmm. right? Just, just, to, just no. to be able to, to keep things in sync and not have to Sort of have whether it's offline schedules, as you said, or or, or other things. But that that simplicity from a, you know not having to reconcile so much on the deferred tax asset and deferred tax liability perspective. Those kinds and maybe things. if
4: it's just timing, you know, right. it's less valuable right. now right. that you're thinking and looking at a right. permanent difference. Yeah. Yeah. Now taking, yeah, now it's real money. now it's real money.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Thank you, Tom and and Anne. I'd like to hear your perspective again. Um, there's a number of new compliance areas new uh, rules that come out of tax reform, very nuanced. I'd like to get your perspective, maybe share your perspective with the audience around some of the tax planning you can do either in conjunction with or around some of these nuanced areas.
2: Absolutely, and and, and Brad, I'm gonna go ahead and caveat this with, I'm not an international tax professional, so.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But you might know a couple. (laughs) But I might
2: know a couple, exactly. Um, So, what we're going to talk about here is, is, is a couple of, uh, well, three actually, new, new sort of calculations, new things that, that companies are going to have to deal with. But the reason we're bringing them up is because fixed assets play a role in them. Fixed assets are part mm-hmm. of, the, of the formula that drives the calculations associated with this thing. So the first one is the interest limitation. And so uh, pursuant to the new you know, tax reform law, um, the deduction for business interest expense is going to be limited, and that is limited to a formula. And the formula is your business interest income to start with, and then 30% of your adjusted taxable income, which is the thing we're going to focus on, and then plus your floor plan financing interest. So obviously, the the best position for a company to be in is to not be limited in the amount of interest uh, expense they can take as a deduction, right? And so in order to do that, we want to make sure that you've got as much uh, of any of these three things is possible in order to get all your in- interest deduction. Mm-hmm. So from a fixed asset perspective, the key thing here is that for at least the first three years, so through January, uh, through, excuse me, through uh, the end of 2021, the adjustable ta- adjusted taxable income is equivalent to EBITDA earnings before income tax, depreciation, and amortization. And so, as a result of that, what is important to note here is that, frankly, however much depreciation you take in those years is not going to matter because it does get added back for purposes of the adjusted taxable income limitation, Mm -hmm. right? However, after that, starting in 2022, the adjusted taxable income is now only equivalent to earnings before income tax. So, in other words, the add back for depreciation and amortization is removed. So, the more depreciation that you're taking in two thousand and twenty two and beyond is uh, is it does not get added back to the taxable income and therefore creates a more restrictive limitation on your business uh, interest deduction. So, as you think about this, it might not be a now thing, but you're going to want to ensure that you are not pushing additional depreciation deductions into those years. so, if you were, for example, going to be doing cost segregations on assets that you place in service in 19 or 20 or 21. Don't wait until 22 to do it.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, There's some other nuances associated with the interest limitation. One thing that's important to note here is that real property trades or businesses can elect out of this, but they're subject to other rules then and they've got to apply the ADS system, the alternative depreciation system, for their non-residential real property, their residential real property, and their qualified improvement property. And the alternative depreciation system is a thing that we're going to talk a little bit more about as we get into um, the next two topics, which are guilty and FDII. Um, it's an interesting thing about the alternative depreciation system because it's been around for a while, but not a lot of companies necessarily are are particularly rigid about making sure that they're using it because mm-hmm. it closely resembles book depreciation, but doesn't exactly resemble book depreciation. De-
3: and that depends on the industry, really. That's very I mean, true. Absolutely. Very different. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's the
2: case. But But for those companies where it closely resembles it, there hasn't necessarily been a need to have a whole lot of rigor around that. So let's talk about Guilty for a second. Um, so, Guilty, the. Glo- <laughs> great name. It, it is a great name. Global Intangible Low Tax Income. But the interesting thing is, I think that they decided to make it say Guilty just so that it could sound like it's guilty for you to have that kind of income. <laughs> but the tax is not necessarily on low tax income, it's on mm-hmm. any global tax, or excuse me, any global income. So, I think they put the low tax in there just to get the acronym mm-hmm. right. Um anyway, so so the guilty tax is, is a tax that US shareholders of CFCs are subject to. And essentially what it is is that any of your global income is going to be subject to an additional US tax. Okay. However, that global income is reduced by a number of things. Mm-hmm. This is a really complex com- uh, computation that I've actually taken a few trainings on, Brad, because I wanted to try to make sure that I really understood how to do it. And I still don't exactly but what i do know is that there's a significant component in this calculation that can actually reduce the amount of income that it, that is subject to the guilty tax and one of those components is the is the ten percent of the CFC's qualified business asset investment. So, what's the qualified business asset investment? Well, again, this this computation in and of itself has got a, a number of things to think about. So, you look at the at the close of each quarter of a taxable year, you're taking a look at the specified tangible property that you're using in that trade or business. And it's depreciated under 167, right? So it's basically your foreign assets. But you're looking at your foreign assets and you're looking at its adjusted basis. So remember, this is a number that reduces the amount of income that is subject to this guilty tax. Mm -hmm. And as a result of it reducing, this qualified business asset investment reduces the income that's subject to the tax. So you want that qualified business asset investment to be as high as possible. So this is the one time when I say tax planning kind of goes on its head (laughs) or is the opposite of what we were just talking about earlier anyway with regard to the rate reduction. And that is to say that what we're looking to do here is have the highest amount of investment in qualified businesses as you possibly can. So for your foreign asset population, you don't necessarily want to do the cost segregations. You don't necessarily want to do the repairs deductions. In fact, you may very well want to take a look and see whether or not you can do a method change to capitalize your repairs and maintenance costs. Um, and so that's that's sort of the, the general planning associated with guilty. So are you seeing many people working on this at the moment?
4: I I, I... All of my clients, I don't have one that has actually kept separate books and records for right. ADS. I mean, it's just they're, they're following book. Um, they are going through the calculation, working with our ITS professionals, not me. But... Um, <laughs> It, it, the common theme that we really want to strike home here is that fixed assets is a huge component of these calculations, and there's ways to accelerate and decelerate that deduction. So you have to look at it holistically. And are you going to get into some of the other calculations? But you can't look at it as an individual calculation.
3: Yeah, yeah, my yeah, my team has we have about two hundred and fifty clients where we're doing the depreciation for them, and in those cases only a handful have the foreign assets sitting within, with, they, that we know what they are. Yep. In most cases, you know, we would have an EMP book, but probably just for the, the domestic property. Some have it for the foreign, but it seems like everybody that I'm talking to that are existing clients, and even some of the new ones, they're all trying to figure out where the, what the information even is and what currency is it and how do they get to all of it. it they don't even have that to do the calculation right now.
4: Exactly. Having the visibility of the data. going to, to be data.
3: a significant level of compliance challenges
1: for our clients. Just, Tom, as you mentioned, data integrity. I know we'll get into some of those conversations, but many of my clients hadn't really looked at their CFC assets right. Um If if they're acquisitive to your comments earlier about uh, acquiring companies and and taking in their assets onto books, whether you keep it in Excel or in your ERP system, just tremendous challenges with knowing what are my assets. The good thing is this is a standalone calculation. It's an important calculation. Um, The challenge is, I think, from my perspective, is you have to have the underlying data to do it correctly. Um, The computation itself isn't that difficult as long as you have the ability to identify what your assets are and be able to run ADS depreciation. Mm-hmm.
2: So. so, so the 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 other um, the other thing that's going on with the tax reform another, uh, another aspect of, of a newly created calculation here, and, and I think what our firm is referring to is the other half of the carrot and the stick, is that the tax reform created an opportunity to deduct um, the the form derived intangible income or, or deduct deductible portion of it anyway. So, so there's an FDII calculation. Now, the interesting thing about this one is that, again, there is a, a number of elements in this formula to determine how much of a deduction a company can take. Mm-hmm. But one of those elements includes qualified business asset investment. Mm-hmm. Only in this particular case, the qualified business asset investment is for your U.S., assets. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, you want to have as much FDII, foreign derived intangible income as you can, mm-hmm. and the that that amount is reduced by the amount of US investments you have in it, the of the qualified business mm-hmm. asset investments. And so, in this particular case, you want to try to reduce the basis in those assets, right? So it's sort of, it's it's basically exactly the opposite. So companies should be looking to figure out how to reduce that investment in their current assets, or excuse me, in their US assets. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is exactly what we've been talking about with regard to all the stuff that was frankly the planning for the, the for the rate arbitrage. So to be able to do cost segregations, to make sure that you have classified your assets appropriately mm-hmm. so that you can um, get shorter lives. Now. Maker's depreciation isn't going to apply here because, as we said, all of these calculations use uh, the the alternative depreciation Mm -hmm. system, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a big difference between the ADS life for real property versus something that has been broken out as Brad's Twitter handle 1245 property, right? So... The, um, that's that's one of the key things to make sure that you're thinking about with FDII, and and again, you know, these calculations take into into account many many more things than just the fixed asset and the qualified business asset investment. But it is an element. It is one of the levers that can be pushed here. And then there's a whole host of other acronyms as I was going through these various trainings that you have to yes. think about as well that are beyond <laughs> the scope of this conversation, certainly beyond the fixed asset considerations. But, so. but do I
3: have all this right? So FDII. Domestic assets, ads. You want you want it low, right? Or you want to have the maximize your deductions? That's correct. Okay, then we've got what guilty. We want that on my foreign assets, That's right? Ads, but I want that to be as high as high basis as possible, least amount of deductions.
2: That's right. The way I think about it is, you should be guilty <clears throat> if you're taking too many deductions on your foreign assets. Was that? <laughs> Did that, you just come up with that.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic. Please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.